I am Dr. Phil Zimbardo, professor of psychology here at Stanford University. Welcome to orientation. And welcome to another episode of the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and welcome to one movie discussion that is probably going to focus more on the real life events than some of the events in the movie. Today, we are going to be talking about the Stanford Prison Experiment. Now, that is the name of the film. I'll make a note of what we plan to do with the name of the actual true life study when we bring our guests on. But the Stanford Prison Experiment itself, uh, the movie came out in 2015, directed by Kyle Patrick Alvarez, based on the book The Lucifer Effect by Philip Zimbardo, so he is credited as a writer. Now, if you're not familiar, Philip Zimbardo is uh, an emeritus professor of Stanford University, and he was the lead author on the study that we will be referring to, and that was portrayed in the film. The screenplay, I believe, is credited to Tim Talbot, however. So Zimbardo has writing credit. Tim Talbot, I think adapted it uh, adapted the lucifer effect for the screen the movie itself stars billy crudup as philip zimbardo putting on his best new york long island accent you know something like that <laughs> and then um some key some key players ezra miller plays a early prisoner or an early released prisoner for um, reasons that we'll talk about in the movie. Ty Sheridan also plays a prisoner that gets a somewhat early release. Olivia Thurlby plays the real Dr. Christina Maslach. Um, at the time of the study, he, uh, she was uh, Billy, I was going to say Billy Crudup, uh, Philip Zimbardo's um, girlfriend and they marry a year later and then several other uh, people that you actually might be familiar with in, from other things. So Gaius Charles is in it. I believe he had a role in Grey's Anatomy for a while. Um, and then um, the the biggest guard in this film is played like the, not the biggest, but like the most prolific one um, is portrayed by, uh, I believe, Yes, Michael and Garano. I don't know if he's been in a bun if he's been in other things, but he has certainly uh, made his mark on this movie. It's very chilling, actually, the kind of mark um, that he he leaves to the viewer. So, again, dear listener, this discussion is gonna probably be about mostly about the real. Stanford Prison Study, 
and we'll refer to the film quite a bit. But, you know, as it will come up many times uh, in our discussion with our current host, uh, guest hosts, Zimbardo signed off on this movie. He thinks it's a great adaptation of the Lucifer effect. He thinks it's a great adaptation of what actually happened. And so if you have not seen this movie, well, first of all, spoiler alert, but second of all, listen to this and then go watch it. I think it might be a better viewing experience if you listen to our discussion today and then go watch it with that context in mind. 90% thereabout of the footage and content in this film, Philip Zimbardo, the real life psychology professor and lead author, lead investigator on this study, signed off on it. Signed off on it. 90%, he believes, is accurate to what happened. Now, his memory might be failing. It's been several decades. But you might catch just a little bit of the things that he was trying to convey and ultimately what ended up happening to these many of these poor men, college-age men. So let's get right into it. I am excited. Here we go. My guest hosts today are two very wonderful people, Drs. Kelly Breitman and Jen Simons. Kelly is a professor uh, and chair, I almost missed that, of psychological science at William Jewell College, just outside of Kansas City. She also serves as the vice president for grants and awards for the Society for the Teaching of Psychology. And Jen is the assistant vice president of academic integrity and accountability. Whoo, Jen, that's a mouthful. That's a long time. At the University of Maryland <laughs> Global Campus, an almost totally online institution for working adults, and serves as the chair of their small IRB. Hey, we share that in common. Previously, she was professor of psychology and department chair at Westminster College in Salt Lake City and chaired the Association for the Heads of Department of Psychology. Heads of Department of Psychology. That's a mouthful, too, (laughs) where she did meet Kelly. So welcome to the show, (laughs) you two. I am so happy to have you on. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Now, we first met each other uh, in 2019 at the... uh, Advanced placement. I almost called it the Association for Psych. <laughs> advanced placement psych reading down in Tampa. And we haven't actually seen each other in person since then because wow. of COVID. So, how have you both been since then? Well, I've missed seeing you all in person, but um, I'm glad that, you know, everybody has found ways to stay in touch during the pandemic. So, um, just trying to, you know, do a good job at, at work with the students and keep them engaged and stay healthy. Excellent. And Jen? Yeah, I feel extremely lucky that six months before the pandemic hit, I had moved to Maryland and taken a position with a mostly online <laughs> institution <laughs> where people already telework <laughs> two days a week. So going remote was like super easy for us. And had I been at my prior institution that was very face-to-face, mm-hmm. small liberal mm-hmm. arts college, it would have been a lot more challenging. And mm-hmm. so it was just this really wild happenstance that I was just in an easier position. Plus, I love staying home. And so it was okay by me. Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, 
some of this was not definitely not okay <laughs> right. by me, but you know, I was already using DoorDash and Instacart. I was already <laughs> taking music lessons online. So Jen, what you're saying is that you um, had a premonition back in 2019 and you were like, I'm, I've, yes. I have things that I need to do. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, my motto has been, you know, it was then apartment as Disneyland and now it's house as Disneyland. <laughs> and I just really and actually part of it was getting the microphone that I am using in this recording. And I set up a recording booth in a closet in my apartment. Wow. That's awesome. I, yeah. I, I mean, uh, the serendipity of your decisions um, yes. prior to the pandemic just really worked out. It's, it was wild. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you two. We have a lot to discuss in this episode. And so I think what we should just do is move straight into it because we're all psychologists and we all know the story um, about Stanford and Philip Zimbardo. So let's so let's jump in. So we're watching in this film fictionalized version of the Stanford prison experiment. And um, I'm going to make an editorial decision from here on out that it's not an experiment. And it's even called out in the movie, which I think is my favorite part of the movie. So good. Uh, that it's not mm -hmm. an experience. And so we're going to refer to it as an experience. So this study. I think that's perfect. Is an experience yeah. um, that I don't think many people want to repeat. Um, whether those men are still alive, I don't think any of them want to go down that road again. Great. So let's first start out with your initial thoughts on the film, and then we'll talk about psychology coming to life um, and go through some of the nitty gritty stuff. So I'll let you two uh, give your initial thoughts about the film, and then I'll, I'll sort of bookend that with mine. Um, so Jen, why don't you go ahead and go first? Sure. You know, I thought it was well done as a film. And um, I read a number of reviews because I was thinking, okay, we psychologists, you know, I've watched clips from this. I've known about this for a really long time, but I'm curious about how do people who don't know about this say. And I agreed with their perspective, you know, that it really looks like a documentary. Um, they really capture the claustrophobia of it. And any of us with PhDs in psychology, some with masters in psychology, depending on the kind of research they did, are familiar with cramped research right. quarters. <laughs> and I think it really, it like feels like a psychology building. It feels like cramped research quarters. It really, it really had that real feel to it. And I also mm -hmm. thought they placed things really well. I thought the opening credits really placed things well in the early mm -hmm. 70s. And um, I particularly noted the rubber cement and I was a child in the seventies and um, yes. Oh yes. Bring on the rubber cement. <laughs> so, you know, but, but I thought like, you know, costume wise, placement wise, set decoration. Mm -hmm. um, I thought they really captured everything really well. A lot of times films will really have some anachronistic costuming or hairstyles or something, right. but I thought they really captured things well. So they set it well. And I, I thought it flowed real well. I thought the acting was really strong yes. and um, they clearly, they, spent all that time in that small space and the ensemble feel of it really came through. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, overall I was impressed as a film. I mean, of course, with a lot of back knowledge, I mean, I have watched so many of the original footage so many times, mm -hmm. but, but I thought it was really brought to life. Well, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Kelly, what were your initial yeah, thoughts? I, yeah, I agree with Jen and the film is six or seven years old now. And this was the right. first time I had watched it. Um, I hadn't seen it when it came out. And in part, just because, like Jen said, we've seen the footage so much that I really just thought, you know, is this going to be entertaining or, or do I know all of this? 
Um, and truthfully, it, it was a little boring because it was, it felt so accurate. It felt so in line <laughs> with what I've seen on YouTube. And, you know, when we've, when we've watched it in class and I was like, oh yeah, that's exactly, that's literally what they said in that, you know, in the footage. Um, right. But seeing it dramatized did bring it to life a little bit more for me. And watching it play out, I feel even more angry having seen it, you know, than, than I even felt, you know, just seeing the footage or reading about it. And I think especially as a mom to imagine, because I have a 13-year-old and she watched it with me and she rarely puts down her, her phone. She's watching TikTok all the time, but she was so <laughs> engrossed in this film that she set her phone down and she was, she was pretty captivated. Um, so, so I forget sometimes how dramatic it can feel if you don't know the backstory to this. Um, but as a mom, I was really angry for how those students were mistreated. Um, and especially yeah. knowing, you know, the, the, the protocols and the procedures that we put in place. Um, and then seeing how, how none of that was really, uh, you know, done well was really frustrating. I agree with that. And uh, just to add to a little bit of what you said, Kelly, um, uh, about your 13-year-old. So my wife Astrid watched it with me, and she knows a little bit about the backstory, too, um, you know, just but through marital osmosis. And um, she was extremely captivated as well. Um, yeah. Just, and just gobsmacked the entire time, like aghast jaw on the floor kind of kind of way and and uh i first watched it didn't watch it when it came out in 2015 but i first watched it with my history of psych class because i was like this movie is perfect to yeah. discuss the history of ethics and social psychology so you know pulled double duty there uh so i always knew that it was going to be on this show uh eventually and so i'm glad the two of you were like yeah let's do it um, as far as my thoughts on the film, I thought it was a, an amazing um, portrayal of real life events. And as you mentioned, Jen, documentary feeling. Re mm -hmm. Yeah. So reviews that come out from the people who are like, oh, I thought I was watching a documentary on a, a psych experiment. And I, I've, I think that's completely accurate with the way that they sort of kept it going. And at no point was I like, man. What's going to happen next? I mean, like I, like you and you both said, we kind of knew what was going to happen because Zimbardo decided to film it all. Um, I don't know if that was a good choice or a bad choice on his part, but he did. And so we're left with a comparison and it's quite a stark comparison. And Jen, you mentioned um, about the claustrophobia. And I wanted to specifically bring that up, too, because um, one of the things that I pointed out to Astrid while they were watching, because I, I also pay attention to like film techniques and, and these kinds of things, is they were always zoomed in on the prisoner and guards' faces. And when, you, when a filmmaker uses that film technique, they want the audience to feel uneasy because nobody is, nobody is that close to anybody's face unless you're like about to kiss them. <laughs> or you're in the Sopranos or, you know, those films where they have people stand way too close. NCIS, like so many of them, they have people stand way too close. But even in those cases, like the the shot is away from the two of them. Right. It, so it's two people mm -hmm. right. who are in the shot that are far too close to each other. And that's obviously uh, for people who like their 
personal space, like, whoa, back it up. But in this one, it's the camera right up in the face. And so for Ezra Miller's character, um, 8612, you're constantly up in his face. Like, oh, I see Ezra Miller's nose hairs. Or um, the guard, the mean guard. I can't I can't think of his name right yeah. now, but the the John Wayne John character, Wayne. Mm-hmm. as he was called, um, just in his mustache. And you're you 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 essentially feel this along with watching it. So mm-hmm. um, I thought it was a good film. Uh, definitely a sleeper uh, under the under the radar kind of movie. Not a lot of people have seen it. So, you know. When Billy Kudrup was, Just us was wonderful. He was. Oh, so good. And not yeah. bad. E- even as Phil Zimbardo, not bad to look at. <laughs> right? Indeed. Yeah, he, he really brought some charisma <laughs> to the role. <laughs> he, he did. <laughs> Although Zimbardo has complained that he didn't use his hands enough because Zimbardo's Sicilian. And, and uh, you know, Zimbardo has said that they did not exaggerate what's in this film. You know, it's interesting, his commentary. I mean, we'll get to that, those kinds right. of things. But in terms of Billy... Um, Crudup? Is it pronounced? I, crudup I pronounce it crudup. Crudup. Yeah, I don't know. But um, but his, in terms of his acting, that was in Bardo's commentaries. Like he did a good job, but he's like, <laughs> not enough. <laughs> leave it. Shit. Leave it to somebody. Not enough Sicilian. Yeah. Leave it to yeah, Z. Leave it yes, to, I'll just keep calling him Z. Leave it to yeah. somebody who um has garnered you know that that kind of ego over the decades. Like, nah, I don't think this good actor acted me very well. <laughs> And the irony, uh, he's he's critiquing the, the portrayal of the personality versus <laughs> the situation. Yes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> irony of irony. Yeah, exactly. So as, uh, as we mentioned at the top, we are all instructors of psychology, and we have likely come across this uh, experience in one way or the other. So the next question I have for the two of you is... In your teaching, how have you explored and explained this, um, we'll call it uh, important uh, instance in psychological research, whether or not the findings are any good, that's notwithstanding. But nevertheless, we do talk about it in class. So my question to you both is, um, how have you approached it in the past or currently? Sure. Um, I only ever discussed it in ethics and research methods and teaching research methods is one of my just life passions. And so I would, I would discuss it as an ethical violation and alongside Tuskegee you know, it was right up there with those things. And and the biggest, one of the biggest things I highlighted was the dual role issue with Zimbardo, both being the superintendent of the prison and being the principal investigator. And so that was like, to me, that's just one of the, it's like the core issue. Um, but that's the only time. And I used to show the footage. And then once the exposés started coming out, and I believe after this film came out, I stopped showing the footage and I told the students, you know, if you want to look it up, you can look it up, but I'm not going to show it because it's so it's even more problematic than just looking at the original footage. There's so much behind mm-hmm. it that is even it's even worse than we knew. And with research assistants and and other and participants coming forward and talking about their experiences, it gets worse and worse. In fact, I even watched something today 
that was another revelation that was just everything makes it worse about how much manipulation went on. And not the good kind and of experimental. Not the good kind, not experimental manipulation, which we'll get to <laughs> talking about that, that like extreme problem, why we're calling it an experience and not not an experiment, right. mm-hmm. you know, but but I was just so appalled that I couldn't even show the footage anymore. Mm-hmm at a certain point. And, um, and one of the most interesting reactions was early on in my college teaching career. I showed it and we talked about it. And then the student said, Oh, well, so did Zimbardo get kicked out of the field and is not allowed to practice? I'm like, no, he became president of the American Psychological Association. <laughs> and not that long ago. I mean, it was in the two. And not that long ago. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I a yeah. couple of friends of mine when we were in graduate school went to the APA meeting in Honolulu and and danced around with him. He was he didn't dance, but they danced with him and he was just standing there awkwardly moving with his cane cuz he's he's a very old man now. Kelly, what about you? Well, and that makes me think about um, most of the students when we talk about Zimbardo, most of the students uh, that I have in my classes know him best from his uh, interest like film series. Yes. And they're like, is that that host that I used to watch in high school? So I think they're more familiar with him that way than they are with his study. Um, I do talk a little bit about it in my intro psych class um, when we get into the social psych chapter, but I mainly present it in a historical context when we talk mm-hmm. about how, you know, there was this debate in psychology about the relative contributions of personality Um, and the social situation. And so there was research going on to look at, you know, situational factors and and the role that that plays. And here's a study that people talk about. um, And and I'll talk about it with you. And the students, I I really don't spend a lot of time on it. It's in their textbook. So they they probably, you know, read more about it. But um, they really start jumping in and critiquing it. You know, they I think they take away less about uh, the role of the situation than they do just, you know, all of the all of the issues that they see with the research. And I think especially as college students, they can relate to it. Um, they can imagine being in that situation. And so I think they get offended when we talk about, you know, they had police cars pull up and arrest them when they weren't expecting it and take them away. And one of the things I didn't realize until I saw the film was that I think they felt like, you know, it wasn't going to be as big of a deal as it turned into. So one of the students, when he was getting taken away, you know, in the film said to his brother, like, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Tell mom I won't be home for dinner. And then it turned into what it turned into. And so, um, you know, I think college students hearing about this study can kind of put themselves in that place and and recognize a lot of the issues and concerns with it. But the other thing that really bothers me about it is, um, and it's in Milgram's study too, the more we learn and know about all of the problems with that research, why does it continue to be in all of the textbooks when there's so much good psychology research that we don't pay attention to? And how do we get to the point where we're, we're not spending as much of our time um, talking with students about poorly done research? Yeah, I heartily agree with Kelly. Like, I think it should be removed from all intro textbooks. I think the only place, the only place it belongs is in the ethics chapter of research methods. I, textbooks. Yeah, that would, that yeah. would be, that would be fine with me. Um, I presented in a similar way to um, what you described, Kelly. I, I 
don't regularly teach social, um, and I'd much rather talk about real things that happened without any influence from psychology when I talk about the, um, you know, the power of the situation kind of thing. Um, and I bring up Abu Ghraib. Um, I know my students don't have an idea of what, Ab I mean, I have to describe what the military did at the beginning of the um, Iraq war in 2003, but I'd much rather talk about that than this and when I have the time to, uh, same same thing with you, Jen, is I, I talk about how this is, you know, in the 1970s, about the time when the United States government was like, wow, we probably should regulate this somehow. Um, you know, we're expecting the Belmont Report coming out in this decade. Um, the APA really figures out, oh, maybe we should do something at the research level and make these IRBs as uh, you and I are chairs of, Jen. Uh, so it, I, I always put it into that context. Uh, I've periodically shared um, a clip or two from the original research, uh, specifically the 8612 um, clip of him having his breakdown uh, with a content warning so my students know that this is going to be some pretty heavy stuff. And if they need to leave, they need to leave. Guys, seriously, you, you, you don't know. I got to go I, to a doctor, anything. And uh, present it in a way that like, you know, if you push people to their limits, they're probably going to break. And you see that in this film as kind of like a buildup of, ah, it's not a big deal. As you said, Kelly, it's not a big deal. Um, we'll, we'll be fine. They're going to, you know, they're going to let it, it's the guards aren't, it, they're, they're F ups. It's fine. They're, they're same guys as you and me. Um, and then things start getting wild and crazy because of, you know, one or two guards who are like, I am high with power. So, but like I said, I'd much rather talk about real life situations where that is the case. Nazis, Abu Ghraib, that kind of thing. So let's let's jump into the film. Um, let's let's first describe the situation for anyone who is listening, who's never heard of it and just wants to know uh, in the intro for the both of you. I said that uh, any listener should listen to our discussion first, even if they haven't seen the film. Um, so they can watch with these kind with this kind of, of of lens because I think that's incredibly important. Otherwise, it almost seems like a fictional film, and I don't want people to think that it's a fictional film. Um, when Zimbardo comes out and says, "Yeah, almost all of it is accurate," <laughs> like that that is that pains me to my core that anybody thinks that any of these things were because uh, they're not going to go look up what Zimbardo said about it. They're not even going to, you know, look up who Philip Zimbardo is. They're going to take the film's word for it at the end with the scrawl across the screen saying it only lasted six days and not two weeks, all of that stuff. They're not going to go investigate. So I want listeners who haven't seen it before to take my advice and listen to us talk about it and then go watch it and kind of uh, and and sort of grapple with the information from there because it's real life and it was really crappy. So uh, Philip Zimbardo was a professor at Stanford, um, Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. 
and uh, he was a social psychologist who was interested in pretty much, in my opinion, trying to ride coattails a little bit from Milgram in the previous decade. That's my reading of it as a younger person. I, I agree with you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he mentions it as well. Is Alberta mentions it in interviews where? Oh, okay. Um, Milgram was not too far behind that. I mean, it was a while before, but still, it was in people's right. memories. Wanted to study the power of authority. Yeah, exactly. Did you so, catch the red buzzer at the beginning of the the intro? Did you see the nod to Milgram with the red buzzer? I did not. I did not, but I saw in um, a documentary or a, a series that um that they mentioned they drew back to the red buzzer and i had not noticed the red buzzer initially very cool good catch kelly i like that so uh zimbardo wants to figure out um how the situation changed personality as kelly described it's it was a a, a, I would say classic conundrum in social psychology i mean even even well two decades before three decades before people like kurt lewin were were talking about um, the person inside their situation. So it was a seminal debate in social psych and he wanted to know more. So he, he, he set up uh, a prison in the basement of the psychology building, which was, you know, 1960s, arc, 1950s, 60s, severe architecture where <laughs> the basement looks very crappy and scary. Uh and is typical of many psychology departments around the exactly. U.S. Exactly. To this day. Perhaps in to other countries. Day. To this yeah. day. They're not, <laughs> to this the, day. The psychology, I guess, doesn't bring in enough money to prompt a donors to be like, you deserve a new building. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although I had a friend who was a postdoc at Stanford in psychology and an interior decorator came to ask him what feel he wanted in his lab. So wow. I think they have more money now for lab space at Stanford. Well, that was mm. 10 years ago or so. But I mean, fair enough. But right. they, mm-hmm. he does say that those were faculty offices down in the basement that they converted mm-hmm. to jail cells. Mm-hmm. So, oh, boy, <laughs> feel bad for the faculty yeah. in that in that whether they, they were probably adjunct offices. Well, I will say that <laughs> yes. um, until recently, my psychology department was in the basement of the library. So we were underground with windowless offices. Oh, and no. It felt very much like what we saw in the film. Now, we have been we have been moved upstairs in a new building. So we have sunlight now. Congratulations. That's Thank a you. win. Thank I'll you. tell you what. I mean, <laughs> you should not have an office without a window. I think that should be mandatory. We but in were any safe case, on the 28th through so well that's true (laughs) always looking on the bright side kelly (laughs) (laughs) so he sets up this experiment quote unquote and um by via coin flip from 24 although 24 men are not presented in the movie because there are nine prisoners and what appears to be nine guards so this 18 that seems like dramatic license because it would be difficult to film 12 and 12. Yeah, probably. <laughs> the, it's funny, though, because if you go look at the tagline on IMDb, which has the official tagline or sub, you know, uh, whatever they're called um, of the movie, it says 24 male students. So it's like, um, but 24 mm. aren't in the movie. But OK. All right. Whatever. Uh, so it sets them up. Coin flip. Guards. Coin flip who's going to be prisoner. And uh, as Kelly said, they round them up in fake police cars, which has to be traumatic to anyone else around. 
Like uh, the one that the only one they show in the film is of Ezra Miller's character eight six one two, and uh, he's outside washing his car. You know, he just he can't even take his ID with him or anything like that. They just grab him. He's probably he's well his known. Brother, his little yeah, brother. he's he's fr- in front of his little brother. But even outside of that, like people in the neighborhood are outside at the same time because it's summertime. It's nice in Palo Alto, uh, mm-hmm. and you know they just they, they just grab him. You don't do that. That's not cool. I know we're getting into the ethics. I of will that, also note, but. Okay, when we well, we'll comment on this during the IRB portion of our discussion. Um, So he has them come down into the basement. Uh, The guards get uniforms. The prisoners get dresses uh, and skull caps or like, you know, pantyhose, I guess, is what it looked like to me. I don't know what else. What other kind? It's the cheap wig Wig cap, cap. by the way. For those of us who've done theater. You can oh, either buy I a wig thought... cap or you can just cut some pantyhose. I thought they were pantyhose too, Alex. <laughs> they were pantyhose. They were pantyhose. No, really. Okay. It looks like, no, it's pantyhose. Like, and that's something that when you wear wigs for theater, you cut pantyhose unless okay. you want to go and buy an actual wig gotcha. cap that look like pantyhose. <laughs> well, you learn something new every day. T-I-L. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Right. Little bonus community theater tips. <laughs> so, uh, and and they get dresses. Um, and in the movie, uh, Zimbardo is telling um, one of the characters that he wants to remove all aspects of their masculinity from them. Uh, all aspects of their identity. So burlap dresses and pantyhose on their heads uh, and they're required to wear them. I have to say, I did not understand the point of the movie or the study where they're trying to um, remove all their masculinity. I didn't see the connection. I mean, I saw it acted out, you know, referring to them Mm -hmm. as ladies and Mm -hmm. she, but I didn't see the connection unless they were just saying this is what it's like in prison. They, you know. I think they were taking the de-individuation and just going farther yeah. with it. And um, and it really was, you know, like if they were trying to simulate prison conditions, mm-hmm. nobody's wearing dresses or pantyhose right. in prison. Mm-mm. They're right. wearing pants. Mm-hmm. They're wearing pants. They get shoes. They get shoes. They are allowed eyeglasses. They are allowed medications. They're allowed to see a doctor if they're not feeling well. I mean, we will get into this farther, but we're still in the synopsis yeah, I, phase. I got Sorry, Alex. But it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. No, it's so hard. I'm yeah, so mad. It. Like, I'm always so it. mad I when I talk about I get this. It. Um, yeah. That's okay. Breaking up synopsis is always good. Otherwise, it's just boring. Um, <laughs> so um, a period of a couple of days. Now, it's in the basement. So the idea is that there is uh, shift change uh, guards. So three guards to nine prisoners. Shift changes uh, every eight hours is what it looks like. But the prisoners, there's no clock. They're not aware of what time it is. So And the viewer is also not aware of how much time has passed. And so that also adds to the whole anxiety building of it. Not only is the camera right up in these people's faces, but we're 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 just as clueless as the prisoners are to um, what's going on um, on the outside world. And so a day goes by. There's a lot of um, what do we want to call it? Some good old fashioned. 
uh, nonviolent disobedience from some of the prisoners. They realize that uh, when, especially when John Wayne comes in, that the guards aren't going to be friendly. They're not going to be nice. They're going to be real big old jerks. And uh, so they figure out all of these ways. Go ahead. You want to explain what you mean by John Wayne? Oh, yeah. So John Wayne was one of the guards who um, decided to take it upon himself because there was no direction really given to these guards, although in real life there was a lot of direction given. Uh, But in the movie, no direction is given to the guards on how to act. And so this character of John Wayne, who is just, you know, a normal guy, kind of short, who once he put on puts on the glasses, he changed his accent a little bit, got a little bit of draw going on uh, and just started being a real asshole. And here's a couple of interesting things. The movie Cool Hand Luke. Mm -hmm was mentioned as an influence both of the John Wayne character and of the reason why they wore glasses. They're like, we're going to wear mirrored sunglasses like in Cool Hand Luke. I also thought it was interesting that the original John Wayne was a tall figure who was a more physically imposing figure, and they chose a short actor, which as a short person, I'm like, all right, no short (laughs) actors. But I also (laughs) wondered, you know, how much that was to exaggerate the psychological manipulation Entirely possible, although from the yeah, real from the real clips um, of that guard talking to 8612, he does look kind of short, but they're sitting, so oh. it's hard to tell. Yeah. But I... It's so interesting. Maybe I inferred it as from all, watching all the old clips, maybe when he's sitting, that he's not, that he was a physically imposing feature, a figure. Oh, the two of them in yeah. the, well, he, the 8612 and... In the clip or in the yeah. movie? Well, he loomed over the others, yeah. I thought he loomed over. I thought he was tall. Mm-hmm. They yeah. they look lanky regardless. Um, granted, it's yeah. been a few. Well, they're all like, you know, college-age males. Yeah, are, from many of whom are lanky. Northern California, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so to speed up the synopsis a little bit more, um, uh, all hell breaks loose over the next few days. Um, several prisoners have breakdowns. The guards just keep going and going and going. Good evening, gentlemen. How about we make this one a night to remember? You mean to tell me that you spent all day long in that stinking hole because you wouldn't eat two lousy little sausages? God damn, boy. Well, maybe you want us to take them sausages and cram them up your ass, huh? Bet you like that, 416, won't you? Huh. <laughs> Just because you have no friends doesn't mean you have to make everyone else suffer, 416. New guy. Look at me. There you go. The hell is your problem, boy, huh? My problem is that the guards and the people running this experiment are not treating the prisoners like human beings. The hell has that got to do with sausages, huh? The guards and the experimenters are clearly... You address me as Mr. Correctional Officer. Mr. Correctional Officer, the guards and the experimenters are clearly in violation of the rules set up for this experiment, and I refuse to endorse an unfair system. What did you expect, boy? Huh? What the fuck did you expect? Did you expect this to be a fucking nursery school? Huh? 
what you thought this was going to be? You thought you were going to get some playtime in the yard, boy? Um, until eventually, uh, a few people tell Phil Zimbardo to put a stop to it. And at the end of the film, there is a moment where the John Wayne character is just going way too far with uh, his actions that he comes down and he's like, the, the, it's over. And they're just like looking at him blankly. Like, what do you mean it's over? S- the Stanford County prison is, which is, doesn't make sense, by the way. There's no county prisons. A Stanford County prison is is closed and they kind of just look at each other like oh okay time to go then and uh, we get a little bit of a scrawl at the end about some of the stuff that happens uh post experience um and then we get some i guess we'll call them during credit scenes with, that are recreations of the post experiment quote unquote uh interviews and and uh discussions between the prisoners and the the guards and then the film ends and you're left with like wow that happened so yeah that was this is yeah. what people really did for psych studies i want to join now i wonder how many people saw that and were like <laughs> i want to be a psychologist <laughs> right although is it um was it 8612 who became a prison psychologist i don't know that one i oh, yeah actually i, I think so know. actually i will quickly google this but i believe i remember from well one that of the would be that would be um quite the uh that would be quite the change, but also really great, kind of kind of inspiring uh, that he took his experience and went with it. One thing I do want to note before we jump into the um, one thing I want to note before we jump into some of the more uh, specific stuff is there is a character in the film, um, a black man who served time. I think he said 15 years at San Quentin. Um, If you're not familiar with San Quentin, San Quentin is a maximum security prison just north of San Francisco, sort of in the Marin Headlands area, just north of that. Um, It's actually quite close to the water, to the bay. Um, You could, if if you could break out of San Quentin, you could get into San Francisco, the northern parts of, San Francisco Bay rather quickly, not as quickly as if you were in in Alcatraz, of course, but um, it's fairly close. And so he has this guy come in uh, as a uh, what's the word Uh, consultant. Consultant. Thank you. Uh, He has him come in as a consultant, plays a role on the parole board, ends up not granting somebody parole when they asked for it ended up quitting because he did not like what he became by not granting a guy parole, which probably was an experience that he had in San Quentin. Okay. Kelly, you were, um, you were going to add something. Oh, well, we were talking about, you know, what happened later on in the, um, John Wayne character. I was reading up on him and, you know, he's a married father of three and he does something in finance. He's like a financial advisor. So, um, 
he did not go the same route as the prisoners going, going in to work in the prison system. He focused on uh, finance. So I just thought that was interesting. And I just confirmed, I just looked it up. 8612 did become a prison psychologist at the San Francisco hmm. County Jail. Oh, that is awesome. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, see, and that's the, see, that's where um, Zimbardo messed up. You don't call it a county prison. That just doesn't exist in the United States. It does not. It's county <sighs> jail or state or prison. federal prison. Yeah. Oh, my <sighs> gosh. Yeah. This federal, guy. Right. Mm-hmm. This guy. <laughs> okay, let's let's jump into the ethics of this because I think that's oh my I goodness. think that's the thorniest part, other than you know just nasty human nature, of course. But Jen, you mentioned um, the dual role that Zimbardo played. So uh, if you could explain that a little bit more, and then um, what are the other ethical issues? So the dual role is so when you're a principal investigator, I mean, if you are being a responsible scientist. You have a priori in advanced hypotheses. They are clear. They have clear variables. You have a clear protocol that you will follow. And if you are truly doing an experiment, you only manipulate one or limited number of variables at a time in different ways. And so the problem is, and Zimbardo, you know, Stanford, there's a lot of pressure. And I remember, I think, can't remember if it was my grad school advisor or who it was who said, I wouldn't wish being a professor at Stanford on anyone because they're pressured to come up with brilliant ideas all the time. And there's a lot of public pressure because of the notoriety of the institution to do famous things. And so Zimbardo is under institutional pressure um, to do famous things. And I think I think it's person by situation, by the way, I'll keep bringing up person by situation because, you know, this this artificial dichotomy of situation and person is is ridiculous, Um, although it was hotly debated a long time. One of my areas is personality psychology. And so, um, you know, person by situation. But anyway, you know, there was a situation where, you know, somebody who is interested in being famous, who is at an institution that wants to be famous. um, So Zimbardo and and. What's interesting is Zimbardo has said, you know, they didn't exaggerate what was happening in this film. And Zimbardo in this film kept on manipulating everything to pull results, to keep pulling results and to have things happening. And when you're a principal investigator, you're invested because your career lives or dies on your publications in the, as we quote, the most excellent publications and being first author in the most excellent publications. And so here he is motivated not only to keep his job as a professor at Stanford, but also to be famous and to bring something of fame to Stanford and to like have this groundbreaking social psychology thing. So he's so motivated by the results. And so it's completely irresponsible of him to make decisions as the prison superintendent. And so what really should have been done is there should have been clear instructions that were provided to the superintendent where anybody could have played the superintendent and here are your rules. I'll tell you my first experience, true experiment. And I was so geeky and I believed everything that I read in my research methods textbooks. And I had not yet worked at a large research university that I was so pure in my experiment that I had people in the experimental condition were not at all experienced in the topic. I gave them a script. I gave them rules. I mean, it was as pure as it, I mean, it's like so pure. <laughs> so, and so watching this, it made me even more infuriated because it's like the lengths that I went to, to not 
allow any other variables to enter in into the experimental condition were just like they were extraordinary measures. Now I see because people usually don't go that far. <laughs> right. But um, but the dual role issue is here you've got the scientist who is motivated for fame and for protecting a job. I mean, that's protecting a job is difficult. And for those who don't know that getting a job in academia and keeping a job in academia is dependent on publications above all in large research universities like Stanford. And that is really what, you know, people live or die on their publications. And so here's Zimbardo who has this opportunity. So he's just really motivated for that. And so he acted really improperly as the superintendent. Here's something, a couple of really interesting points about at that point, this is so pre-Belmont report. So in 1976, work began five years after Stanford Prison Experiment or not experience, Stanford Prison sort of simulation. Yeah. <laughs> um, discussions began of the Belmont report. Many people came together and, and the report was published in 1979. Mm -hmm. And that led to the modern research ethics that we use today. At that point, there was a human subjects form and you can look up the human subjects form for the Stanford prison. It was called, uh, I can't, it had some vague title about situations and people, blah, blah, blah. Here's a couple of interesting points. One, it was listed as an observational study. Oh. So even on their application, it said observational study. Wow. It wasn't even listed as an experiment. Oh my gosh. Second of all, it said no deception would be used. Oh. And in a recent interview with Dave Eshelman, who was the John Wayne character, he said that they were never told as the guards that they were part of the experiment. They said only the prisoners were part of the experiment. And the guards were not told. They were just instructed what to do mm -hmm. because the prisoners were the ones who were being observed. The other thing is they said they could hear the experimenters through the wall commenting on what they were doing. And so something called demand characteristics, which is um, participants in experiments and other types of studies, if they get an inkling of what the, the um, investigators are looking for, they will try to help them. They will try to like, okay, this is what they want. This is how I, I am a good person. And Dave Eshelman has said, you know, Zimbardo made it clear what we needed to do. Also, you see in the film, all of the different encouragement of the, of really trying to amp up the guards and really trying to manipulate what the guards were doing. But it's interesting if you go back to those documents, also in the informed consent, there was no informed consent for being publicly arrested. Um, that was not part of the informed consent. The informed consent form, you can find that online as well. Very limited, extremely limited. And they also referred to the contract about not being physically assaulted. I couldn't find the contract online. Um, and here's what's it's controversial about. So Zimbardo said nothing was added for dramatic effect. Some people are saying that they didn't actually physically assault them, but I think these things are really at odds with each other. And I think all the exposés have really pointed to that there was physical assault. Yeah. Uh, Kelly, what, well, what did you in spot the in the. Well, I was just going to add the physical. assault, even the fire extinguisher, you know, on the, the second morning when they led the rebellion and then the mm -hmm. guards intervened by um, spraying them with a fire extinguisher. Yeah. Um, you know, that really happened. So I, I don't think they can claim that there was no physical assault and, you know, making them do push-ups and, and having prisoners sit on each other when they were doing push-ups. And um, I don't know if yeah. they hit them in yeah. the way that they did in the film, but. 
Right, right. Yeah, like you could you could probably make an argument like no guard use their baton on somebody's face, but it's mm-hmm. really difficult to say that the other stuff doesn't constitute physical harm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not yeah. not to even scratch the surface on psychological and emotional harm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um Kelly, what right. what else did you spot? Um, as unethical or discussed in your classes as unethical uh, in this um, simulation? I guess some of, in terms of ethics or, um, you know, methodology flaws, you know, they, they put an ad in the paper, you know, saying that uh, they were doing a study on prison life. And so I, I think already, you know, Jen talked about demand characteristics, but when you talk about bias in terms of the sample too, you ha- you already have failed college students who are answering an ad about a study of prison life. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that's a pretty unique personality set. Um, you know, and his colleague in the film, when his colleague Jim walked in and said, you know, this is a frightful site. What is your independent variable? Mm-hmm. Um, and Zimbardo became really defensive and deflected. Um, in terms of saying, you're not questioning the academics of my work, are you? Um, so he kind of had that classic personality of shutting down anybody who was trying to question the ethics of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had, you know, anytime his research assistants would would say, you know, I'm concerned, maybe we should end this. You know, he would raise his voice and say, no, you know, don't. And so he just shut down all discussion um, of any kind of feedback. So um, that that was a concern. I I agree with Jen. There was no detailed informed consent, and it was pretty clear that the students didn't know, um, you know, what was going to happen. Um, Jen mentioned earlier, you know, taking away their glasses, uh, not letting them smoke cigarettes when they were, you know, when they were smokers, so they were going through withdrawal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of them was upset because he couldn't have his vitamins. Um, they were sleep deprived. I don't know if the informed consent, you know, talked about how you were going to be sleep deprived. But I think what bothered me the most was they wanted to they wanted to leave. A number mm-hmm. of them said so many times, I want out. I, I don't want to be here anymore. And Zimbardo was saying things like he could be faking it. Should we deny his request? Come on, look at you. You tell me you can't handle what? Some push-ups, some jumping jacks, guys calling you names. Come on. Tell you what, I'll talk to the guards and tell them to go easy on you, all right? Would you do that? Phil, I think we're done here. Take him away. Um, And I think they really started, I mean, everybody's talked about this. They really started to believe that they were in a prison and they couldn't leave. And when they advocated for themselves, they were still not permitted to leave. And Mm -hmm. I just thought it was really disturbing when they had that visit, the parent and friends visit. Um, And parents came in and significant others came in and acted like, their, you know, their kids, their sons and daughters and girlfriends or boyfriends were uh, in jail. You know, they, they went along with it. Um, it just felt, it just felt to me like it seemed so real that everybody was, was falling in line and really treating it like they were in prison and they weren't allowed to leave. And in that scene, when that one mom was raising questions about it and Zimpardo's response to her was, you know, is your son too weak to handle this? And the the dad became really defensive. Oh no, no, he'll be fine. He's not, you know, he's not weak. 
um, that, that was strange. And bringing the priest in, um, he just introduced all of these elements that made no sense to me. I couldn't figure out what is he trying to do here? He, is he just throwing? It honestly sounded like a couple of high school students got together (laughs) and thought about, oh yeah. And then we'd have this experiment and then we'd have this and then we'd have this and then we'd have this and like, yeah, they'll visit and they'll have all, and then a priest will come, you know, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like Jen, yeah, it sounds like those two, um, those two high school kids in, in, in your little analogy here just watched a bunch of prison movies and we're like, this is how prison is, right? Duh. And we'll just do it on our own. Uh, yeah. And then we'll have this and then we'll have this. And it's kind of like, actually, you know, all of us researchers, we always start out with too grand of an idea. And then we always pare yeah. it down into, you know, what's possible and what's feasible, what's ethical, you know, what's these things. And so this is like nobody stopped them whatsoever. They started with their big grand idea and they just kept going with all this stuff. And it's just like, there's so much contamination. It's ridiculous, but also just so troublesome. And the informed consent, by the way, so it's modern informed consent does have, you know, voluntary participation as a principle where you can leave at any time. If you say you want to leave, you need to leave. Um, but this informed consent form did not say right. that. It did say, though, that you could get medical attention. And so there was a violation of that informed consent from when they asked for a doctor and they could not see the doctor. So that was one thing that was in direct contradiction to the actual form. But the modern protections were not in place about voluntary participation. To your point about the parents and uh, other loved ones visiting, Kelly, uh, the one thing Mm -hmm. that I noted uh, in that scene with the mother and the father of... um, I guess it was 819 or 619 played by Ty Sheridan um, when Zimbardo's like, is your son too weak? And then he looks at the dad and it just engaged all just gross forms of toxic masculinity toward that and, and sexist behavior toward that poor mother who is just concerned about her son. And it's like, I'm not even going to talk to you, woman. I'm going to address the father here because he's a man. You're not. And we're talking about a man and we're men. We're <laughs> men. And um, and then, of course, the dad doesn't want to appear weak toward uh, Zimbardo. So he's like, yeah, 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 yeah he can handle it. He's fine. Like, that's your friggin' son. Yeah, a quest for, you know, toxic masculinity and quest for fame were the two big, the fire and the match, or the gas mm-hmm. and the match, I would say, you know, of uh, the ways that toxic masculinity was used. It was throughout the film, I mean, throughout the experience yeah. of the dresses, of the homophobic Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. So there was the reenactment where you're the Frank Frankenstein, you're the Bride of Frankenstein, and you have to get very close mm-hmm. And having prisoners reenact these homoerotic scenes, mm-hmm. you know, so toxic masculinity was just one a really strong theme throughout this. And it's interesting, and I don't know if it was a choice of the filmmakers to draw it out, or it was just there was so much of it there in the previous footage and in any of the documentation of the study. You know, it'd be interesting to hear from the filmmakers about did they choose to enhance that? 
did they, or was it so much of it there? Did they downplay, you know, how much of it was there? Yeah, the film that ends be up being two hours, and I'm sure they could have gone longer. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, to, but then I would have wanted to punch more people. <laughs> well, and to Jen's point about the homoerotic scene, um, out of all of the things that happened in the film that were really inappropriate and unethical, you know, that's what, in the film, they depicted that's what put Zimbardo over the edge to end it. You know, all of the other stuff that happened, he was letting it go. And in fact, he lied, you know, to the prisoner and was like, I'll tell the guards to take it easy on you, which he he had no intent of doing. And he let all of that go. Well, there was one. So it's on um, one of those sites about the um, the study. And it said the biggest one of the biggest inaccuracies in the film was that it was ended when the at the time girlfriend who became Zimbardo's wife, who was, we will note, in dual role form, a former student of Zimbardo's. Indeed. Indeed. Um, which we can go back to. But um, but, uh, but, but, they, I, uh, but but just to interject one yeah. real quick, she also ends up playing a role within the study, too. Yeah, she does. She's on the parole board. She's on the and- parole board. Yep. Yeah, but but there was like the the one big inaccuracy that is noted on that site about, you know, was it real? Was the was the fictionalized version real? And they said, well, the difference was he ended it when she said it had gone too far. Right. And so I think they and it's interesting, though, again, like, did they enhance the toxic masculinity and make that choice in the film that they went beyond her warning? You know, they did the warning in the film, like she planted the seed that mm-hmm. these are boys, not not prisoners and and then he saw the homoerotic stuff and then he decided to end it you know so maybe there was a decision on the filmmaker's part to to do that but i thought that was an interesting choice in the film because it wasn't and zimbardo has said she pointed out you know like in his i think it maybe was in i forget which interview but you know he said that she pointed out that it had gone too far and he ended it yeah that, i i thought that um i had read that Several people had mentioned to him that it's going too far. Um, and they kind of show it in different places in the movie. Um, the consultant character uh, leaves after he makes a poor decision about denying parole when he was in that position himself. Um, and then uh, Christina Maslach coming in and saying, hey, they're just boys. I think that all kind of, as a viewer, I think we needed a um, conflict resolution, of course. You know, it's a, it's a narrative, it's a story, so uh, it had to come out as somebody telling him to do it, which also plays a role in some ways as um, us feeling sorry for him, the audience going, oh, that poor guy. That poor I never Philip felt Zim- that way. I Zimbardo. didn't either. I didn't either. <laughs> well, we, we know we, better. Right. But maybe the, well, you know, actually, Kelly, you could ask your daughter, you know, Alex, ask your wife. Well, she knows, know, too, she knows better. She knows either. too much. Yeah. Right. She knows. Right. But yeah, actually it would be interesting. You know, did they feel any sympathy for this character? Hmm. That's a good question. Yeah. And I would I say that, um, that general audiences could potentially feel some sympathy. Maybe not like, oh, boo-hoo, he didn't get to complete his research, but like, oh, you know, he he was grappling with something and we've all been in that situation where we've had to make tough choices. 
that that's all I'm saying. Like, right. He is attempted to be redeemed by the filmmakers. Right. I think they, they dramatized that well, where like she plants the seed and then he really is thinking about it. And then he just sees confirmation of that. And that's the moment. And and it's build up too, right? Because that right. that scene seems like it's going on for l- far too long. Cuts cuts between what's happening in the prison. Cuts between uh, Zimbardo in the control room and back and forth and back and forth. And he's like he's getting more and more agitated until he finally goes, ah, I got to rush down there. Um, and that scene was really so well it's a, acted. I thought. Yes, it was. Oh, that that tension so well was done. palatable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. We have dual role. We have crappy informed consent. We have um, holding people against their will. I mean, Zimbardo could have been charged with kidnapping. Yes. Uh, and his entire career. I don't think he, ref- he has reflected on that enough. I think he needs to come out and say, I kidnapped some people. Well, Here's this is a whole other piece of this is that Zimbardo still talks about this study as if it yielded valid results. Right. And this is really problematic. He will acknowledge uh, the dual role thing. He will say something about it. And then in the next breath, he will talk about the results from the study. In fact, having provided letters for things, having provided commentary on the Abu Ghraib prison as if this was a valid study and produced actual results. Right. I think Zimbardo just has this intense need to be discussed, you know, and all of his, all of his research. Are you familiar with the study? It's not as well known, but the, the, the study he did with the abandoned cars, one in Palo Alto. No. He, no. And I, I call it a study loosely. Um, they had two spare cars. <laughs> so they put one in the Bronx with the windows down and the hood up. Um, and then they put one in Palo Alto with the hood down, the windows were up. It looked like any ordinary car. And the one in the Bronx that with the windows down and the hood up was destroyed within a matter of, I don't know, hours. And the one in Palo mm-hmm. Alto sat untouched. And then he decided, well, let's see what happens if I lift the hood of the one in Palo Alto. And so then when it looked like it was an abandoned car, then people came in and, and took stuff from it. And you just think, what about that is a study? Like nothing about this. I I think Zimbardo needed to go back and take research methods again about experimental manipulation. Who gave him the Psych 101 video series controls? Oh, my God. And who elected him president of APA? Who were these voters? I am Dr. Phil Zimbardo, professor of psychology here at Stanford University. Welcome to Orientation. You're going to be very pleased to know that you all have been chosen to be the prison guards in this study. And that choice was made based upon the exemplary qualities that you all demonstrated during your interviews. So good for you. This experiment will be an extension of my research into the effects prisons can have on human behavior. Being that it's summer and the school is almost empty, we should have near complete privacy for this study. And as you'll soon see, we have cleared out some of the teachers' offices and converted them into prison cells. And the hallway will serve as the prison yard. But remember, just as you were watching the prisoners, my graduate staff and I will be watching you. 
So under no circumstances whatsoever are you to hit or physically assault the prisoners in any way. Now, you'll all be given sunglasses and uniforms to give the prisoners a sense of a unified, singular authority. Once a prisoner is jailed, he will not be able to leave except under established procedures. And from this point forward, you should never refer to this as a study or an experiment again. So let's talk about uh, the biggest elephant in the room, which is the guards and um, the ethical lapse of those guards. So in the movie, they are presented as kind of bumbling and sort of idiotic at the beginning. Um, the first shift, as it were, um, who took in the during the intake process of the first uh, well really Ezra Miller's character is the first one to come in and you know he gets he has to get deloused which is a whole thing in my mind like <laughs> Ezra Miller's butt on the screen for a good extended period but also in the direct shot of the um, spying camera <laughs> for the study just like these grown men are in another room looking at the video feed of another grown man's ass uh which i thought i was like are you are you kidding me right now because in real prison settings yeah you are likely naked while you're getting deloused um but it's in a closed room and nobody's watching you maybe like one or two guards there i thought that was uh, talk about humiliating it's another gap in the simulation yeah, exactly. Um, and so uh, they they the guards seem kind of bumbling, and then the second shift comes, and John Wayne's in it, and he's like, "How did it go?" And they're like, "Eh, it's fine." And uh, he's like, "Well, I'm gonna have some fun." So, what was real about that, and what wasn't real about that? Well, there's the quiet rage footage of the... Oh, actually, I think it was towards... At the end, they actually reenacted it during the credits. Right. Of where he's like, I've got my own little experiment going on. And that was mm -hmm. the actual person who did it. And so we... You know, there's a little bit more at work to John Wayne than, than actually even maybe Dave Eshelman, the actual John Wayne, may say now. Yeah, I thought it was interesting because in the footage, part of that is edited. Part of their discussion is edited um, from from what I've seen. Um, I don't uh, at, at least what has been put out in the public has been edited. Maybe the raw footage is not. Um, and that's what they were copying. But you see, you get this interesting exchange between um, the John Wayne guard and 8612 um, when he says I was doing my own little experiment um, and you kind of get this very uh, incredulous response from 8612 like, oh, you were doing your own little experiment? It's like, yeah, yeah, I was doing that. But in the footage that is publicly available, that little bit is cut out. And it goes from um, it goes from him saying, like, I know you're a nice guy. And um, no, you don't. Yeah, I know you're a nice guy. And then it kind of it kind of a camera focus shift or like a, a, a single shot. And so I thought that was very interesting that they hmm. cut that out from hmm. the original footage. Like, 
Oh, hmm. John Wayne was doing his own little game here. That's mm-hmm. that was brand new information. Well, and I had seen that on YouTube, and I mm-hmm. and one of the things that I wondered even before I watched this film was how, how honest was that? Because I could see after the fact when you when you realize that this study is going to make some attention and you maybe regret how you behaved and you're trying to paint it in a different light. And so was he trying to cover up some of it by acting like, oh, I was doing my own experiment? Like, was that truly what he was going through his mind at the time? Or was he just giving in to how he was going to behave naturally and then later was trying to come up with, you know, just trying to, why did I do that? And just coming up with an explanation that he thought others would buy. I've never known if Mm -hmm. that was genuine. And what's interesting is the recent interview with him, he's really talking about doing what he knows that Zimbardo wanted and the demand characteristics being really high. And it may have been that he did not feel comfortable discussing that at that point because he was still under the watchful eye of Stanford and Zimbardo. And maybe he did not feel comfortable saying, you know, I I could hear these researchers on the other side of the thing and they really liked certain things that I was doing. And yeah. And I know what Zimbardo wanted from me and I was doing it, but his middle-aged self, you know, is definitely right out there with that. It's like, I was trying to provide the researcher with what he wanted. Yeah. And, and, and that really yeah. fueled, that, that really fueled uh, the other guards. They were like, okay, well, I'm going to take a page out of his book and, and, and roll with it too. And so the third shift guards did the same thing. And there's a moment in the film where like, they're like, yeah, nobody says anything. You can do this. Yeah. 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 There was a lot of you. There was conformity. Once one person started acting out, the other guards did. And at Mm -hmm. the beginning when Zimbardo was congratulating them, you know, when they asked during the screening process, would you rather be guards or prisoners? And every scene, everybody said prisoner. And when you asked Mm -hmm. why they said, uh, you know, it's easier. And then somebody else said, nobody likes guards. You know, <laughs> nobody wanted to be a guard to begin with. But then when he had them in the room and he was telling them that they were selected to be guards, he congratulated them. And rather than telling them that it was a coin toss, he said, it was because of your mm-hmm. exemplary responses and congratulations. Mm-hmm. And so he kind of built And there was up. more deception. Mm-hmm. There was more deception that was not noted in the human subjects form. <laughs> oh my God. And here's, and, and also when it came to the person by situation, it's not as highlighted in this fictionalized version, but it is highlighted more in the original, in the quiet rage documentary that not all guards went along with it. And some guards helped the prisoners and not all prisoners had problems, you know? So it's, we see the, the worst of the guards and we see the worst of the prisoners, especially highlighted in this film. But the person by situation thing is very strong because not all the guards acted like that. Not all the prisoners had problems. Right. And, and, and uh, that is a good point to bring up, Jen. I'm glad you did, because uh, it it highlights that we do focus on some of the more egregious stuff. And we do in other situations, too. A lot of bad apples do ruin do ruin the bunch. Right. Um, but it's still. It's still actually incredible how some of them that didn't do anything. I know you mentioned some uh, actually helped the uh the prisoners but the guards that just didn't do anything right the apathy are, was the apathy yeah. the that mm-hmm. that in and of itself is also problematic yes yeah 
But I do remember, and now it's been a while since I've seen the quiet rage and the the footage, but there were some some guards who were trying to help the prisoners. Not in big measure, but, you know, there was some of that. But the apathy, right, the other guards that just stood by and let the other things happen. And, you know, and so you have the same situation and a variety of reactions. And so that really speaks to person by situation. And, but they're not even results. So we can't even talk about them as results. <laughs> We're just noting that we are seeing some footage of some things that happen in a highly manipulated situation. And actually, this really made me think about where we, the bad apples thing, you know, when we talk about police officers and like a few bad apples, but it's, it's rooted in a system. And mm-hmm. in this, it was rooted in a, a system. And, a, and of, a system that did, it was completely fictional. Fictional and highly motivated for one person's gain. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, the, the consultant who served time at San Quentin um, noted that, you know, these aren't, aren't prison conditions. And Zimbardo basically was like, I want to show these white boys what life is really like. And it's like, okay. You keep changing the rationale for the study. Like, are you trying to show what happens in the power of the situation? Are you trying to show um, the differences in experiences of majority versus minority people in the United States? Are you what are you trying to do? I think that's a great and again, like. Yeah, I couldn't tell. He kept changing his story within the movie, what his purpose was. And he just kept saying, uh, you know, these are great results. Or his research assistants would say, you've already got the results, but this you have to see this through. Well, what were the results? And I mean, it really is. It just shows how motivated they were to achieve a certain outcome. They, you know, they were not unbiased in, in this demonstration. I will point out um, that uh, they start with um, three graduate students. The one um, that you just mentioned, Kelly, that says you have to see this through. It looked to be like his most senior graduate student, one who was in the lab for the longest. But midway through the movie, there's a there's a, a glasses character named Kyle who looks like he's a first year graduate student and just wants to show his um, advisor that he can he can do this and he's ready to go. He disappears halfway through the movie. Yeah. He, he walks out becomes, of the room. He, he walks out of yeah. the room and he becomes irrelevant for the rest of the mm-hmm. story and you almost forget about his act of defiance. That's true. Actually, that was a subtle, like it was this kind of a subtle move. There was some, yeah, there was definitely some resistance happening, but it was like, it was there as this undertone. Mm-hmm. And um, then the the final graduate student played by um, the guy from Grey's Anatomy that I can't think of his name right now, Gaius Charles, I think, um, he went toe-to-toe with uh, the ex-con. Like, no, this is... This is prison. No, this is bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. And he tried, but, you know, it's so hard because, you know, their ability to get the degree that they're working so hard for is dependent on this principal investigator, you know, their advisor. Like they have ultimately have to go along with it if they want to graduate. And I mean, the whole there's a joke. It's not really a joke. You know, what's the true goal of a dissertation? The goal is to get it done. Mm-hmm. And and that means and actually always with that comes like you just have to agree with some things that people on your committee are saying 
because it's not worth <laughs> fighting it because you want to, the goal is to get done. Sure. Head down. Right. The goal is done. to appease them to, yep. uh, a good dissertation is a, is a done dissertation. dissertation. Right. I've heard this too. Yes. Whee! Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we all, all feel that for, for several decades. Yeah, we will. Um, okay. So I think we've done a pretty good job of dissecting this. Do either of you have anything else that you want to add to this discussion of this film or this experience? Here's one little tidbit. I looked up what $15 is in today's money. Okay. So $15 a day. And it is about $103,2022. And, you know, and that's an interesting amount of money for college students who are not working during the summer. Here's another question. Did the guards get the same amount of money? Because everybody was told they get $15 a day, but they only need to work one third of the day. And the prisoners are there 24 hours of the day. And I've wondered, I've never seen anything about this, but I just, I wondered about it. But, you know, $103 to like a 19 year old in the summer, Mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of a fair amount of money. And that's I don't know that it crosses the line into coercion, but that's a principle of research ethics is to to make it fairly compensated, Mm -hmm. but not coercive. And so I I thought that was an interesting, you know, point. I mean, one hundred three dollars if you're going to be there all day for the prisoners, that's nothing's enough compensation. But for the eight hours a day of the guards, you know, that's more than minimum wage for sure. That's more than like good retail money. Yeah, if they got the same amount for just eight hours work, yeah, yeah, um, fifteen dollars was way better than anything that they were earning in eight hours on yeah. an hourly wage for sure. Yeah. And maybe that's why they decided to join. Um, Kelly, you had noted that uh, this is a good form of selection bias. People that needed the money were um, more apt to answer the ad. Yeah, and people who weren't turned away from the concept of a study of prison life. You know, I personally don't know if I, even Mm -hmm. for the money, if I would want to respond to an ad about that. I I do want to make a plug for um, my colleague, Jared Bartels. You know, he's done a lot of, uh, he's done some scholarship on this study, on the critical thinking and and issues behind this study. And he was invited to do an episode of Mindfield, um, which is a a show on YouTube TV. And they did a reenactment. But what they wanted to do, the reason they asked Jared to be involved was they wanted him to identify some of the methodological flaws and see if, you know, if we removed this idea that we're going to recruit a certain type of person who, uh, you know, would respond to a prison life ad. Um, You know, if you can still create the anonymity, um, you know, do you see the same kind of results? And so they did a simulation where um, people were brought in and they thought they were competing against another team to solve a jigsaw puzzle and they turned off all the lights and they were doing it in the dark and they were, um, Uh they were able to, uh, they didn't really deliver a buzz to the other team because there wasn't another team, but they thought they could deliver a buzz, a loud sound to the other team. Um, And they purposefully recruited people who, um, who, who, who had positive personality traits, who were, you know, generous and empathetic and things like that. And um, all of this stuff that you saw, like, you know, that people would behave a certain way to get ahead um, or that the the power of the situation could turn you into an evil person and do bad things. None of that 
you know, was observed in this other demonstration. So I just want to make a plug. If you watch the Stanford Prison Experiment movie, it's really interesting to follow up with um, the minefield episode on the on this on the study. I watched that episode. I highly recommend that minefield episode as well. I think there's a lot. It's very rich in it. And Kelly, you can tell your colleague, Jared, I'm a huge fan. And I I, want to look at his um, published paper about intro psych. And, you know, there's a lot there. And I thought it was a a very well done, especially for sort of pop press kind of thing to delve into this world. And there's an interview with Zimbardo in it. And, um, and Zimbardo says, well, you got that because you selected the people for high moral characteristics. These, I had normal people in it. And he still talks about it as if oh they're results. Oh my God. Yeah. He's hanging on to yes. this. And he was so annoyed. Like he was very annoyed about it. He was. He but was. even, okay. So I, I have to, I, I have to push back on that. I have not had a chance to watch the, the episode that you're referring to, but it is, it is, on, it is on my list. I have to make a general comment about, Zimbardo here, which is he says I used normal people. Okay, fine. Then why are I know our prisons in the United States are really shitty places, but why are if if people put in the situation are absolutely turned into evil, then why aren't our all of our prisons burning down right now? Right. It it just doesn't make sense. He, he's no. he's extrapolating well beyond the confines of that basement. And even for if decades. that basement had been an actual simulation of actual prison conditions, you know, if they went variable by variable, like what are their uniforms? How are the guards trained? What are the regulations for the guards? What is what is the food? Do people have their medications? You know, all this. Even if they had done that, and even if, you know, it's all this if, 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 but it wasn't a proper study. It was complete manipulation. Yeah, I... I they, they created a dramatic experience. I don't think he has a leg to stand on when he critiques other people's explorations of this, because... He does not. <laughs> and I think he and Milgram, you know, I, I've seen footage where they talk about, they were both really interested in, after Nazi Germany, they were really interested in how how many... Um, citizens turned a blind eye to all of those atrocities and they wanted to understand it. And I get that motivation. You know, how could so many people let something like that happen and not do anything to try to stop it? But I don't think, I don't think either one of them really did a well-designed study to be able to answer that. They didn't answer that question. But they didn't do any science to help explore it. No, because, um, you know, if if uh, and and Milgram has said that he was trying to specifically um, target the underlings uh, in who were actual officers as Nazis. So maybe not generally speaking, um, the common German or Polish citizen who was not Jewish and allowed things to happen. But um, more or less, why would you follow orders? Um, so I get that, but extrapolating the conclusion beyond that and saying, why would the general populace have this much, much apathy? You can't, you can't make that conclusion from either of these studies. You can't say normal people do X when put in situation Y. No, you can't. And so he's sitting on here, he's, he's sitting on his self-made throne 
still hang on to it and people still talk about it. And the problem is, you know, students go through, if all they ever take in psychology is intro psych and this is covered in the social psychology chapter mm-hmm. as results, it's really problematic because they go out there and there are people who are suspicious, you know, of psychology and they're like, oh, they do these evil experiments, you know, and this does nothing to help the cause. And I think what would help the cause is removing this from social psychology and only keeping it, you know, my, I, this is my soapbox topic is keeping it only in research ethics because it was not a proper study. And like you have both talked about, there's so many more properly done modern studies to right. draw from that we can actually begin to draw conclusions. And this is not the place to go for that. And I, I find it really irresponsible that even after the exposés, okay, up through the exposés, eh, okay, maybe I can say it. Now that the exposés have happened, this needs <laughs> to be gone. And I would actually really like to see a movement in psychology, a protest, a large protest to say, get it out. Stop calling sit it in. an experiment. A sit in, yeah. get it out of the intro psych textbooks, get it out of the social psychology chapter and only discuss it as an ethical violation. I really appreciate the books that spend more time on the on recent research or, or research that we know was well done. When textbooks spend a lot of time devoted to Freud, it's the same kind of thing. Ugh. We don't want our yeah. we don't want our psychological science majors to have that, or, or, you know, or even students who take one hundred and one to, um, to to have that impression of our discipline. Um, and I think we need to move away from that. And I think some textbooks do a better job than others. So I want to thank Drs. Kelly Breitman and Jen Simons for joining me today to discuss the Stanford Prison Experiment, so named because of the film. And so before we go, what are some things that are going on in your world that you'd like to plug for the listeners here? I would like to encourage anyone listening who is a teacher of psychology to check out Division Two of APA. It's Society for the Teaching of Psychology. Membership is at most $25, depending on your status. It's and very the expensive. society gives out, yeah, and they give out, um, there's so many different awards and grants and travel grants that you can apply for. So there's a lot of resources, a lot of networking opportunities, um, and just an amazing organization. So I would encourage people to check that out. Great, Kelly. And Jen? Great. Well, I know that a number of faculty grapple with academic integrity and academic misconduct issues. Mm-hmm. And to get to the modern forefront, I recommend academicintegrity.org, which is the International Center for Academic Integrity. There are a lot of wonderful resources there to support approaching students in a learning-focused way around things that are not criminal behavior that sometimes get discussed as criminal behavior. Um, you know, but I, right. I think it's a it's just excellent resources because I know faculty can really sometimes feel like they're on their own and depending mm-hmm. on what their institutional processes are, or policies are, um, there's a lot of great support and community um, in the academic integrity, larger community. That's great, Jen. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, uh, so that is awesome. Uh, STP, academic integrity, wonderful plugs. So I hope that I can see you both soon. And um, it was definitely a pleasure talking to you both. Same here. Thanks, Thank Alex. You, Alex. And that's going to do it for this episode. Until the next one, y'all. Thanks for listening. Thank you.